You're listening to Tone Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hey, everybody, welcome to Tone Vendors. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I will be your host today. With me today is the sound team from Ford vs. Ferrari, which is now one of my favorite movies. I got to see it at the Toronto International Film Festival, and I'm not really a gearhead, so I was going in thinking, uh, this will be a fun movie, it's about cars, uh, but the sound's going to be awesome, so I can get a lot out of it with sound. And then the movie started, and uh, I totally kind of forgot to pay attention to the sound, because I got sucked right into the movie, and uh, really, really enjoyed it. It's framed as a racing movie but it's actually kind of a buddy story it's uh, kind of a really cool movie and it's more uh more emotional than i was expecting based on the ads that i'd seen at that point in time look out there out there is the perfect lap you see it i think so most people can't carol shelby maybe the Coke, Ford Motor. Suppose Henry Ford II wanted to build the greatest race car the world's ever seen to win the 24 hours of Le Mans. What's it take? Well, it takes something money can't buy. Money can buy speed. What well, about speed? You need a pure racer behind the wheel of your car. That's Ken Miles. I don't trust him an inch. We heard he's difficult. No, no, Ken's a puppy dog. No. Whatever it is, Shell. No. Trust me. Joining us today, we have the, one of the re-recording mixers, Paul Massey. Paul is an eight-time nominee for Best Sound Mixing Oscar and the current belt holder for having won the Oscar last February for Bohemian Rhapsody. His previous films include work on The Martian, Almost Famous, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. I love that movie. Multiple Pirates of the Caribbean films, a bunch of X-Men films, Master and Commander, another one of my favorites, and the all-time comedy classic, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Let's not forget that one. Uh, I'm here talking to you guys from Toronto today. Paul, you have a history in Toronto as well, is that correct? I do, actually. Yes, I, I moved from uh, England as a teenager and landed in Toronto and spent 13 years there and was able to establish a music career there. Uh, sort of drifted into film while in Toronto and then got an offer to come to L.A. and uh, moved to L.A. in 1990. So Toronto was very good to me. David Giammarco is a two-time Oscar nominee for 310 to Yuma and Moneyball. He's had a long career as both a supervising sound editor and a re-recording mixer with past projects including Logan, The Help, and another one of my all-time favorite movies. Have you guys worked on all my favorite movies? Groundhog's Day. I love that movie. <laughs> Plus over a hundred other films. David, do you have a history with Toronto as well? I do. Yeah, so you grew up in Welland, is that true? Grew up in Welland and uh, moved to Toronto to work in film in my early 20s, I guess, and um, worked freelance editorially at Path A and Film House and different places in town, and then uh, moved to California in, in 1989. When you look at uh, the credit list for both of you, there's a lot of overlap there. Have you guys worked together many times? Yeah, we have. I believe we've been working together for off and on for about 13, 13 years, yeah. yeah. And Dave's my preferred effects mixer to work with, <laughs> I have to say, especially as he's sitting right next to me right now. Yeah, he has to say But <laughs> No, most definitely. We, we've got a, a great shorthand, I think, and um, really like the way each other works uh, with, with ver a variety of clients and a variety of studios. Um, so it's always fun when we can get together and, and mix a film together. And we work together in Toronto as well. 
Yeah. Not as mixing oh, partners, did. but you know, shows that I would be working on editorially, Paul would mix. And uh, so we, we kind of knew each other in the last couple of years before we, before we came to California. So today we're here to talk about Ford versus Ferrari, which is an interesting film because it's kind of a Goliath versus David story in a weird way. The small little startup company is normally in films who you're supposed to be cheering for, not the giant multinational corporation. And yet at the end of this film, I was completely cheering for Ford, which goes against every instinct you have when you walk into the theater. It's a really impressive undertaking because it's both an emotional buddy picture, but it's also a race car movie. So you guys had to come out firing with real car sounds from the 60s. Where did you source all that stuff? We found a, a GT40 in Ohio. Uh, a guy had a 64, I believe, GT40 in Ohio that uh, was pieced together its original parts. And he was willing to uh, let us go out there and record it. And we got a racetrack that we had it out on. And uh, the record team mic'd it from inside and out, transaxle mics and ambisonic mics. And and the guy just drove it out for us. And, and we got as much as we could get and as much as he was willing to give with us. And then the Ferrari, there was a Ferrari in Atlanta that we found. It was a 59 Ferrari, but it was a 12-cylinder. That ended up going to Florida on a track there, and we did the same thing. The record team tracked that and got full on as much as we could get again throughout the whole day on a racetrack with these cars because we, we knew we'd need so much of it. They were definitely, you know, the two additional stars of the movie. The thing that I found really interesting about the film was the cars sounded great. But the problem that you can run into when you're doing a race movie is that if you have large engines roaring in the audience's ears for, you know, 30 minutes straight, the audience will just start tuning you out. And I thought something that was really well done in this film is you guys found holes to get you out of the loud car noises and found ways to stop that ear fatigue from happening. Was that something that was built into the script? I'm glad you noticed that, first yeah, of all. And uh, Yeah. Um, no, it was, a, it was a, it sounds silly to say a delicate balance, but it was a delicate balance even with these huge engines roaring and the suspension and, and everything that goes on in the racetrack. And, and a dance that Dave and I had to do between uh, music and effects mainly in terms of understanding what emotion should be leading at what point, especially during the race sequences. We were very, very sensitive to not overpowering the audience with, um, you know, sheer 110 dB sound at all times. There has to be pockets, there has to be waves, there has to be, and, and as a character story, there has to be focus on different emotions at different points, even during the race sequences, um, and certainly throughout the rest of the film when there's not car engines going. But kudos to, to Jim Mangold, to be honest, because he, you know, we've worked on many of his films together and we've been lucky enough to do that. And he is so about character and story and taking the audience on a ride from the beginning to the end of the film. And he's certainly not about let's just put up action from frame one and take it all the way to the end, which is incredibly tiring on the audience. So, you know, it's a team effort, but um, obviously a, a delicate dance for us to to not wear the audience out over the whole film. What is it, like 25 minute, the final Le Mans race scene at the end? How long would you say that scene is? You guys would know better than me. That's about right, yes. 25 minutes? So did you ever find yourself just going, well, we got to take this cue out? How did you pare it down? The music was obviously spotted before it got to me. I did the music pre-dubbing as well. And I mixed the dialogue and music for the final. And as we were working our way through it, it was apparent that there was, you know, potentially too much. And we were constantly looking for areas where we could even take a short section out of the music to give, give a breather 
you know, as a car came into pits, do we need the music there? Can we get out and just go to rhythm, get rid of the melody? Do we need anything at all in this sequence? Can we take it out and will it survive on its own or does it become a little bit boring? So a lot of that was working minutely within the scenes, but then obviously looking at the overall and running the entire sequence of the you know, 25-minute end Le Mans section several times in order to see if the flow of it works and also to see once we had taken the music out, does that still work or does it put a break on the whole mm-hmm. you know, climax of the film? That was quite a long process, to be honest. And, uh, and yes, we worked very hard along with Ted Kaplan, our, our music editor, and the entire team just to, to figure out where to put music in and where to take it out. Yeah, because sometimes the energy would change if, you, if we took music out and then it just became, it would kind of stop us because there are sections of, you know, there's many sections of the Le Mandre, so we'd put back, try different things and, and see what helped that whole through line going. And then even, you know, within cues, um, as you can imagine, the music is very rhythmic when it's uh, bold and in your face within a race. So there were even sections within cues where I would be removing the rhythm or, or sections of the rhythm section to allow for suspension creaks and accidents that happen on frame one of a cut and et cetera, the percussive elements of the effects so that we weren't in conflict uh, rhythmically and yet you still got a sense that music was in there even if it was in there at you know, minus 20, minus 25 underneath the car. It was, you still held on to a, a string of melody to, to keep you with the fact that the music was still occurring. So mm-hmm. I had great access to all of the instrumentation from Marco Beltrami and Buck Saunders, our composers. Uh, so everything was split out, and we had great freedom in, in being able to play what was needed, but not everything if it wasn't needed. Well, it worked really well because I wasn't thinking about it at all. I was just on the edge of my seat. Now, there's two scenes that I wanted to uh, kind of talk about and maybe break down a little bit because I thought they were really interesting from a, a mixing point of view. There's a scene right before the big race at Le Mans, underneath the stands, right before the race, and we follow Bale from underneath out onto the track. Can you talk me to how you guys managed to make that crowd work from going in the tunnel to being huge when you go outside, but you're hearing it the whole time, but it's changing and morphing. Walk us through that a little bit. That was a that was a, a tricky one because we worked on that a lot. We spent a lot of time with that. In picture editorial, they used to have a an engine start off stage happening right as he walked into frame, and we were thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't have an engine there because you know we're not the cars haven't started yet. That part of the racing hasn't begun, and so we we built it up with crowds as well and tried to make a cacophony of crowd noise in that hollow space in that tunnel and then let that kind of just blossom because this is his first time at Le Mans too this is his life's dream you know we were trying to kind of let that crowd just kind of bloom and blossom as he walked out and and sort of pick up life as he walked down the hall different voices going on in, in this side in this paddock and voices to the right in that paddock and people walking by just kind of create that sort of oral moment for him and then it let it just boom out when and get big when we got outside. Especially as we go into that hallway, in terms of dialogue and crowd, we definitely went very mono in that space with mm-hmm. a very small small room kind of a feel, a very uh, tight slap echo on, on everything that was going on as he, as he progressed his way down that hallway. And so you were hearing the individual drivers walk past him and then... Jim had a great idea towards the end of the mix to... The director, Jim. Yeah, sorry, Jim Mangold, to add 
crowd from above, from the bleachers, from the concrete bleachers that were above that hallway, crowd that would be stomping as well and, and cheering. And, and so we made that in the Atmos environment very uh, mono and above us and echoey and not expansive. And these things opened up as, as Ken Miles walked his way down the hallway. And as Dave said, as he walked past an open door that, that went out into the, into the pits, you know, you'd hear an engine rev or you'd hear conversation going on from that particular pit. And then eventually, as he turns left and makes his way into his own pit, the entire crowd and the band that's playing at the event and everything opens up into full-scale imaging all around us. It took a long time to get that sequence together. Yeah. We, we, we experimented in many, many ways with a lot of Jim Mangold's input and eventually got to the point, you know, everyone was happy. It was, it was a great sequence to work on, to be honest. Yeah. It's a really effective sequence in the movie because, as you say, you get to experience it with Christian Bale as he's experiencing it for the first time. He's a hard character to love in the film. He's not a great guy. So w being able to kind of feel his emotions with him during that really kind of gets you on his side, which is uh, another feat that the movie does. Because in the first half hour of the movie, you're just kind of thinking, who is this guy? I don't want anything to do with him. And by the end, you're cheering for him. Yeah. So it's a, it's a cool effect that you guys did. So you, you mentioned that you did a lot of experimenting. Can you give me an example of something that you tried that just didn't work? Different ways of playing the crowd, whether it was... Didn't want to go wide with the crowd because when we were in that tunnel, but we played with it wide and we played with it narrow and, and then tried to open it up. I forget what other things were. I, I believe we also tried it where we were sort of in Ken's head as he walked down that hallway and we didn't really hear much of the sense of the crowd or the, or the engines at all. And it was more his internal moment of here I go into this major event that I've been dreaming about. And then it opened up later on as he walked through the door. And that was kind of an interesting approach, but it didn't really draw the audience down the hallway with him. You played with music, too, a lot in there, to the, yeah. band, the band playing. Yeah, that's right. Jim, Jim Mangold, again, wanted, um, wanted me to play with the sort of marching band that was playing out as, as a, a part of the event out for the audience at Le Mans. And he wanted me just to play with spatially how that sounded in the hallway. To make that work, we had to take out so much of the crowd and other items that we were starting to add in. It became a little bit manipulated, a little bit managed, and I think the audience would have realized that we were, you know, taking control of what they would, what, what we were wanting them to focus on a little bit too much. So eventually, we came around again to this, um, to this more more of an emergence of crowd really than anything else. The other scene that I wanted to kind of dig into a little bit is the scene where Matt Damon's character Carol Shelby takes Ford Jr. for the ride. To give you an idea of how effective that scene worked, the woman sitting beside me when I saw it, uh, it was a sold-out house. I don't know if you guys remember the uh, Princess of Wales Theatre in Toronto. It's normally for a live theatre. And during the film festival, they play movies there. So it, it holds thousands of people. It's huge. And the woman that was packed in next to me, she literally had a panic attack during that scene. Like, she started... Like, literally, she couldn't breathe. Everybody in my section was like, are you okay? You're okay? And she was... So I missed the last half of it. But the first half of it was so effective that it literally made a woman have a panic attack. I've never seen that in a film before. It, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> can you kind of dissect that scene a little bit for us? For me, it always showed this is, you know, the athlete and the amateur moment. This is how the real guys do it. And he got to experience it. It was a chance for Carol Shelby to be a race driver. If you know what I mean, because when he says in that scene, when him and Ken are out at night before 
before the race at Le Mans. I love that line where he says, "Too bad you." Miles says, "You, you know, you should you should be here too." And he goes, "I I couldn't race with this team." When Shelby says that, and I love that moment because he knows that the team that he brought to Le Mans was the best guys that he could bring, right? And that moment with Ford was him being that race driver too. So approaching that, it was just like when we knew right away it was going to be kind of Mr. Toad's wild ride. It was going to really, once he hit the gas pedal, it was go for it. And Jim was, you know, he was all about that. So it was just a chance to really let the engine rip, let it fly around the track and skid and move it around. And, you know, he's screaming the whole time and his hands are gripping that dashboard. And and then it's over. It's very quick. But it's, you know, when we previewed that, in theaters, I was blown away the first time I saw that with an audience. I couldn't even hear what was being said because it was just they were the audience went with it so well. And I think it was very brave of Jim Mangold and, and Mike McCusker, the picture editor, to hold on to Ford at the end crying and sobbing because he just basically he had he had just been hit by a truck and didn't realize he thought he was in for a great little ride. He suddenly realized what these athletes, who are the drivers, had to go through and the control they had to have on the machine. And I just love the fact that we stay with them through the windshield for so long while Ford is recovering. (laughs) I mean, we don't cut away at all. He didn't shorten that. We just stayed with him crying. It's a wonderful moment, not only to let the audience recover, because as you say, everyone's like wildly erupting and reacting to what they'd just seen, but also to get the emotion... To, to see that Shelby had calculated that and he had gotten his message through to, to Ford, the human, in a way that could never be described in an office setting. Yeah. He could never have gone in there and said, you don't know what these drivers are put through, you don't know what they're doing. But he could show him incredibly quickly by taking him for a joyride exactly what he's talking about. Just a fantastic scene. I, mm-hmm. I really, really enjoy that scene. Yeah. And by the way, no music in that scene, which was a very concerted effort. Well, there's no room for it. It's someone screaming nonstop and the loudest car engines you've ever heard. Like The meters are pinned regardless of if you put music in there or not. It was, there's no room at all for it. You ready? I was born ready, Mr. Shelby. Hit it. <laughs> That's true. And, and also, at, um, just a little side note, at the very, very end, when, he, when Ford is crying, you can hear one single-engine sort of Piper Cherokee single-wing plane in the background. That was not added. That was live. That was production sound behind his crying. Yeah. And I think it's just a magical moment because, you know, they're at an airport and it just goes down to this singular little, instead of a jet engine going by, yeah, you've got this singular little wispy small plane going by, which kind of shows how frail Ford was. Uh, And that's, to me, that was just a a magical moment that occurred uh, probably completely coincidentally on production. Yeah, well, those things happen and you got to grab hold of them when they do because that's where the magic comes from sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was wondering if you guys could talk to me about your workflow when you guys are working together. So obviously, Paul, you're handling music and dialogue. Is that correct? Correct, yes. Yeah. How do you guys uh, bounce back and forth? Well, in the weeks leading up to the final mix, obviously, um, David is uh, going through all of the effects and backgrounds and Foley and doing his pre-dubs. 
mostly in the box, right, Dave? Nowadays, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm I'm more of a console guy. I don't really mix in the box. So I'm uh, I have a Harrison MPC five, and and then at, at Fox where we mixed this film, we had a, a Neve DFC. So I'll hard print my pre-dubs. I'll do dialogue ADR group uh, and announce the pre-dubs. And then uh, I was able to get my hands on the score early on. The score was all provided to me by Ted Kaplan as two-track elements. So individual instrumentation all the way through. Had about 50 or 60 tracks of that. And then I took, I took that in turn and did a pre-mix, keeping everything very wide but doing 5-1 stems of those individual elements which was a mix then I brought to the, to the final and spread into 7-1 and Atmos accordingly. So we arrive at day one of the final mix, each of us having gone through all of our you know, dialogue, music and effects, and we're in a rough balance with each other. We'll start the day with um, a faders up run through the, the reel, hopefully with Jim Mangold and um, picture editors uh, present just to get an overall shape, because really it's the first time that everyone's heard what is proposed to be the final music, what is supposed to be the final sounds for the car, etc., etc. all of the ADR for the first time, potentially. So you just get an overview of the reel. Sometimes it's a mess when we do that first pass, and most of the time it isn't. But it gives us also a gut feeling as to who should be leading what emotion throughout the sequences in that reel. So there's clearly places where effects are going to take over. There's clearly places where dialogue is needing to be king. There's clearly places where the emotion of the music should be leading the audience. And so we discuss that uh, on, on a very broad overview level. And then I'll go through and do a dialogue pass based on what we just learned. Then I'll do a music pass against that dialogue, putting all of this into automation, never actually recording at this point. And then Dave will equally have his time to go through the effects and uh, backgrounds and foley against what I had put together with dialogue and music-wise. That, that process will probably take almost a day. And then we'll go back and start to work the reel with either Jim there or, or certainly with the picture editors and Don Sylvester, our sound supervisor. And we'll start to work the reel through. And, and now we're looking at more fine balance and fine, fine mixed moves and changes where we know that you know certain phrases of music aren't working or that ADR doesn't really work or the production's too noisy, we need to use the ADR, etc. Now we're getting into the final mix balance. That'll probably take us about four or five hours. Then we'll be presenting to Jim and getting into his notes and his direction and where he would like to take the reel, which we then do normally with him. Uh, and once that's complete, we put the reel on the shelf and repeat. I find it really efficient. It may seem like to somebody who's behind us at the credenza that it's taking a long time. Why aren't we, why aren't we mixing together, working together? But it's really, um, it gives us both a chance to find and know where everything is, get everything in our, within our own things where we want them to be. And I, like on this show, I was always working editorially and, and, and mix-wise against the temp score that we had, the temp track, so I knew where music would be, at least in, in its placement, knowing that it was going to be changed by score. You know, when Paul has done his dialogue and music pass, it's great for me, because now I know I can be this big here, I can be, and I, and I could listen to the music and know what the music's doing too, and it, okay, it's rhythmic here, and I can sort of get in closer, but here I, we have to let this melody line play, so it's really great. Then when that's, we're both done our passes, we have a pretty quick 
run through to together to get to the end of the reel because everything's pretty tight and it's oh hey Paul can I just back up and grab this one thing I want to lower or raise and it's sufficient I think for creatives that we're working with the supervising sound editor the picture editors and Jim to say hey raise that lower that and we're able to deal with it quite quickly and get the reel done play it back continuously get notes do the fixes and move on fortunately Jim especially now that we've done so many films with him, he, we have a bit of a shorthand with him. He's not one to stew over the details with us as we're putting them together. In fact, he did, I don't think he enjoys that at all. He likes to know that we're on the same wavelength, which I think most of the time we are. And then we're just dealing with really, dim, you know, if he wants the color yellow, what shade of yellow does he want? And so yeah. we're, we're dealing in that kind of level, not, oh, you've done it yellow and we need it all red. You know, it, we're not starting again. So I think, as Dave said, it's, it's very efficient for us to work that way and it actually speeds things up down the road in, in terms of the second pass and being able to quickly grapple with his notes with input from Jim later on. And, and with that too, like Jim also comes up with great ideas yeah. all the way through. So he'll throw things at us that will go back to the cutting room and, and create something or, or fly something in quickly on the stage. or We can, we can change directions quickly too, but our, our framework is quite strong I think so that we can handle that quickly and easily. Jim is great at coming up with ideas as I said earlier he's, he's all about story and he's great at coming up with ideas that lead emotions in, in different ways and I, I often find he gives me a lot of latitude with um, music mixing especially where instead of saying specifically what he's looking for he's, he's giving it an emotion he, and he'll throw out phrases and you might go I don't understand you know internally I'm sometimes thinking I'm not quite catching what he's saying keep talking to me Jim and he'll throw out one phrase and you go got it got it got it got it okay you don't need to say anymore I understand exactly where you're coming from and he didn't say specifically put the drum pattern on that frame and don't and push the guitar there he didn't say that he just gave me the emotion that he's wanting to convey and he's really fabulous at doing that and and as you're constructing those new ideas uh editorially and mix wise you have to be pretty quick on your feet and potentially not fine-tune everything you don't have to dot all the i's and cross the t's just get it in the right place is it working as a broad stroke yes it is okay now refine it um, it's a great way of working. It's wonderful working with him. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a great way to work. Uh, just uh, one last question for you. I know you guys got a heart out. Director's not in the room. Picture editor isn't there that day. You guys are working together. You both want to have your stuff hit this one moment. Who wins? <laughs> <laughs> it's not really a question of winning, I don't think. Thank Depends goodness. which one of us is in the room, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's often times... I don't think it's a case of winning, by the way. It's, it's, it's really, um, you know, which one are we going to work... Which one do we think is going to be the better presentation? So, of course, I win. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, we don't often get into those situations, to be very honest. And um, often I'll find, you know, if I do a dialogue and music pass and I am not really, haven't really been listening to the effects pass that Dave is subsequently going to do, I'll find, you know, I've, pu I've pushed music too far in one in a couple, few places because there was nothing else filling it in as I put that pass together. You know, and I'll say to Dave, I'm, I'm going to back that off later on. Don't worry about it. You can ignore that music phrase. Just do what you're going to do because, you know, this, this is an adjustment that I'll, we'll do together once we get into the second pass. And I love working the effects around the music. Like, it's, 
But to me, it, it puts it all together and weaves it all together. Yeah, I, we both very strongly feel that, you know, these mixes are not dialogue, music and effects. This is a, a single soundtrack that the audience is going to hear one time. Um, and so we shouldn't be even considering those three categories when it comes to what's going on in the final mix. We're, we're considering the soundtrack as it's presented to the audience, and so we're, we're really not precious about holding on to those, um, those food groups, if you will. I think it also comes down to trust. You guys trust each other to uh, what works best for the film. You guys are both going to work together. Definitely. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. As long as you can hear the dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> it's <No>. true. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me today, guys. This was a really great talk. Uh, if you guys are ever back in Toronto, let me know, and I'll uh, get you guys a beer for sure. Thanks That'd so much. We'll, we'll, we'll hold you to that. Thanks. It was wonderful <laughs> talking to you, too. Great talking to you, too. Okay, great. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 